Russian, right? Yeah, I um, hold on. Yeah, no, I took a vacation. I like to take vacations in um, bef uh, after the holidays. Like everybody else is on, uh, uh, you know. De so December slows down at most workplaces. My December was actually, but usually in December, I find in office jobs like you'll have days where nobody is in. There's no managers. You're just kind of basically there, making sure stuff's still operating. Um, so it's no, like, I feel like when you take days off during that time of the year, it's kind of wasted. So I like to just like save my vacation days. And if you're in a situation where you can roll some over to the next year, I, I go like the second stuff starts to get busy in January, I fuck off. I, I mean, on. honestly, Josh, that's a fucking brilliant grift. And <laughs> it, <laughs> because you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. It's like, it's already vacation mode in the office in December, unless you have some job that has like a crazy deadline that month. But yeah, it's really smart. I don't I mean, I don't work in that way anymore. But it's when I when I think about it, my old corporate days, I wish I would have done that. Yeah, and it's weird. I don't know. I guess okay, okay, maybe this is better. Like I don't know. This is probably as good. Yeah, as we'll gets. just live with it. We'll just live with it. Uh yeah, I I'm excited to talk to you. I feel like it's um been a long time coming. And like that the way we were thrown into this project, I feel like I never got a chance to know you. And so I kind of see this as like an introductory conversation in a lot of ways. Does that sure, make sense? Yeah, cuz we had we had a brief call before uh like we but that wasn't really like getting to know someone so much. I think we just talked about a bit, a bit of the project. So yeah, like I definitely know Derek a lot better than I know you. Yeah. Yeah. Same. I mean, I actually, I don't know, maybe not, maybe, maybe that's an overstatement at the time we started this. I definitely felt like I knew Derek better than I know you, but now I kind of feel like it's evened out a bit or like my knowing people in uh in this scene has been like diffused over more people and so i realized right. that some people are unknowable and maybe derek is one of them yes. I, I i don't know i think he's pretty i i wouldn't say he's like i don't know right now he's been like less uh open online i mean he's had his account locked down i know that he has like um pers good personal stuff going on like i know job wise oh, and stuff but i know he's yeah. been super busy and stuff and so he's been i i I think he's pretty open but i do know what you mean about unknowable people like there's there are definitely people even people with whom i've interacted on twitter who i yeah i feel like i don't know at all and they're kind of like i don't know it's not that they put out a kind of image but they just don't let you get too close i guess yeah 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 um but but the but then i thought like i've so just to set up this conversation for the audience I've been thinking a lot about the genre of autofiction and like defining it a bit better, like understanding its history and thinking about like where it's going. And I thought you would be a good person to talk to about that because I think based on looking at your book stacks and, and hearing your comments about things, I think you almost like you read uh, autofiction to like, a very large extent like that's that is something that you seek out like you've been doing it for years right yeah it's an obsession i mean i try to read widely so i i i stop myself from 
reading too many in a row, especially there are some publishers I like. I mean, Simeo Text is my favorite and, mm. they just, and they just followed me on Twitter, which was nice, but I wonder how long until they unfollow me. Um, but because <laughs> I post, I post about their books all the time and they, that's one of, I mean, they publish some academic stuff and I'm probably not that interested in, but they, one of the main things they publish is, is kind of like personal narratives, I would say, because it's not all, I mean, they publish like just straight up memoir and they publish auto fiction and they do publish some straight up fiction. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, Anyways, I seek this stuff out consistently, and it's probably my my favorite style uh, of writing to read is this kind of confessional uh, writing or stuff that blurs the line between fact and fiction. Uh, but to really appreciate it, I always make sure to kind of like I'm going to read Madame Bovary, which I've been talking about for like years. I suppose but I, I try to read classics and I try to read a variety of things in between because it kind of reminds me of why I love it so much, you know, because if I'm just mm. reading that, it kind of, I I feel like some of the books might make even less of an impression than they should because I'll be like, oh, this is good, but it's not as good as the last four autofictions I read in a row kind of thing, you know, versus uh, if I, even, even if I, that's why I intentionally read bad books too sometimes or books that oh. I think are going to be bad. Um, even literally stuff like Michael Crichton, like Jurassic Park or something, you know what me I mean? Me too, like, dude, me too. I'm like, I, I, um, I let it like draw me in because you know it's wait I I want to get back to one question later so I'm putting a pin in it now which sure. is I definitely want to ask you to define autofiction and memoir and like tell me what you think the difference between them is but okay um so because I have a bookstore and I collected a lot of books and and sometimes get uh gifted books into the store I try to have a policy of like really browsing my own bookstore and picking books that I don't know and and then you get this kind of like huh that one was really good huh that one was really bad but I try to be a completist about it and let it draw me in and then see where it takes me and when it when I know it is bad or when I know it's not succeeding in the ways that it set out to succeed I really pay close attention to that I don't stop because it's like it's so important to me to kind of like notice those <sighs> yeah I don't know it's a mood it's a mood when you're reading something that's boring you and it helps me later when I'm writing something to know if it's boring to me or could be boring in that way no, totally. Uh, I also just whether it's the autism or or whatnot, I will not stop a book I've started. Like I will finish one. I mean, there's been a handful of times I've stopped a book, and it hasn't been because of um, not wanting to finish it. Just Don Quixote's one, and I'm probably going to try. Excuse me, this that one this year as well. That was just because I got sixty pages in and was enjoying it, and then got caught up with other stuff. I was this is back when I was in school, and too much time went by, and I was like, oh no, okay, I need to restart this kind of thing. Like I because you know if too much time goes by. I kind of want to get back into it. So, um, but yeah, the time I can count on one hand, the number of times I haven't read a book that I've started like straight through. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, I mean, sometimes some books take a while to get started. Like, you know, even one of my favorite uh, books of all time, which is uh, Winesburg, Ohio by Sherbert Anderson. I, I didn't really care for that much for the first um, 20 or so pages, maybe even more. Maybe it really didn't get going till 30 or 40, but you know, uh, in some cases it's like halfway through. And in other cases, there'll be stuff like, uh, 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 not, was it nausea? Yeah. Nausea by Jean-Paul Sartre, where I, I, 
you know, I was pretty bored with it, but there's a part in it later on where he describes kind of like the prerequisites for love being like energy, generosity, and blindness. Mm. And, you know, that, that line alone, I mean, you know, and that was like, for me, that was like worth reading the whole book, you know? So there's also about finding those things there, but yeah, sometimes books are just complete stinkers, but you know, I'm glad I read them because they then make the good ones really shine. Mm-hmm. True. Yeah. Well, you want to, you know, I actually was looking up stuff before because okay. to organize my thoughts. And one thing was, you know, the definition, which is kind of a big uh, question mark around the term autofiction, which is so thrown around now. Like a lot of things are, well, A, it's just become a popular, I think for kind of maybe obvious reasons, a popular style of uh, prose, like one that actually sells sometimes, you know, and why I think, do you think why do you think the reasons are obvious for that? Because of uh, how everybody's kind of presenting themselves on social media more and mm. more and, and how we're all kind of uh, the idea of the creator and just everybody's a creator and, and, you know, and to a lesser extent, I mean, there's so many, I've saw an ad for music production software and this is kind of related, but it was like, everyone's, everyone's a producer, everyone's a creator kind of thing. So I think that this ties into that. So, I mean, to me, it was obvious. That's kind of what I meant. Like, that's why I think it's, it's kind of caught on people reading that kind of stuff, then wanting to create it themselves or mm -hmm. maybe thinking that anybody can do it. So a variety of things going on. I think it's made it popular and like can Oscar, it's my struggle. And, um, being such a huge seller, but even Sheila Hetty and just um, a lot that fuckboy novel. I don't know how well it sold, but again, that was an example of like a super hyped auto fiction, right? Um, I from a big read Nosgod or Sheila Hetty, so I I've heard both of those names uh, more than once. Um, but you think that those those books are like heavy hitters in this genre? I do. Well, I do because I think or like. Author. Yeah, like Sheila Hetty has done a bunch of different stuff and her uh, last novel, Pure Color, was more kind of, I wouldn't even say traditional fiction, but it was definitely not autofiction. I mean, it was like, it it, it was, um, I believe it was like third person and it had like these kind of surreal elements. But her books, um, How Should a Person Be and uh, Motherhood are complete, you know, uh, well, we haven't defined it yet, but they're autofictions. I mean, it's very, okay, you know, okay, yeah, okay, let's yeah. define it, let's define it. So I have trouble with it. And I think a lot of people do. Um, I think so. I was looking up because some people ask, like, well, what's the difference between autofiction and uh, Romana Clef, for instance? Um, and I mean, from some of the definitions I was looking up of Romana Clef, it's like in those it's like it's based on real people or events, but the names are kind of like changed. And I know that seems like a, a small detail, but like I think in autofiction, like primary firstly, and obviously it shares this in common with memoir, is that um, it's the narrator's got to be the person writing it. You know what I mean? If it's an autofiction by Josh Sherman, the narrator is Josh Sherman. I mean, maybe there are some exceptions, there are always, but like just as a, as a rule of thumb. And of course, it shares that in common with memoir, but then memoir is supposed to be like journalistic, right? It's supposed to be completely verifiable. If you were doing it to a T right. in the way that, you know, a librarian would want it done, it would, it would, be verifiable journalistic um you know all all real names uh, except for maybe in, in the case of legal you know limitations but um whereas with the autofiction there's obviously more room to play and you know maybe it's more of like a malleable like memoir kind of but there's so much different stuff like there is like um some of it is pretty journalistic right like uh 
some people use a lot of recordings like Tao Wins Leave Society or my favorite, one of my favorite auto fiction writers, uh, <laughs> Guillaume Dustin, a French uh, writer um, who died of a overdose in the, I guess, er early 2000s. But I, I was reading, I just finished his latest um, novel in English. Like the late, it just came out this uh, in December in translation on Semiotext, Nicholas Pages. And that has like, he's transcribing, uh, his grandmother's journals in it and he's like you know making notes furiously at the nightclubs and it's like you know so in that case it's like well is it how does it differ from memoir well in his book for instance there are there might be a chapter or a description and then he'll be like no actually it didn't happen like that you know what I mean and so just like you know it's just when I say it's like memoir but like more malleable like there's more room to play that's kind of where I'm at in terms of how I think of autofiction um, but my thoughts on it are always changing the more I read of it. I don't know if that was helpful, but that to me is kind of how I distinguish it between memoir, Romana Clef, pure fiction, that kind of stuff. Yeah, no, I think it is. I think that was very helpful. And, and, um, uh, the, the idea of using, um, names, I think is the only place where I would probably differ a little bit because even though it is important to me as well to use, real names um I feel like there are plenty of books that I would cast as autofiction that that don't do that um but you know what I was thinking is like when I like the first book that ever really spoke to me was the diary of Anne Frank which like you yeah. have to read in the fifth grade right like the or sixth grade and um and I was just, and I still think it's like one of one of my top five favorite books I've ever read. It's it, it's oh, yeah. incredible, and the immediacy of it, it's still there. And I think like that whole concept of the self as the main character. Um, in this case, it's diary, but like it's edited in such a way that it feels so um plot driven <laughs> yeah like and actually i have a there was a bit of like a, i had a joke before like you know is it anti-semitism to call the diary of anne frank auto fiction because you know to, to suggest it's not you know uh, almost to suggest it's not 100 real um but like i mean she I, I actually consider uh it auto fiction because um i was a bit i read it quite late i read it last year um oh, yeah yeah oh and, wow and we, because we, we actually, so I grew up in an area where I grew up in a very Jewish, I mean, it was becoming Chinese and Persian as well, but it was still very traditionally Jewish um, neighborhoods. So my high school had like Holocaust studies as a class, but I just wasn't very studious. So I'm sure it was on a reading list and I just didn't read it, mm. uh, which, which I'm, you know, which is fine. I wouldn't have enjoyed it maybe because uh, I didn't really like anything about school. And so if something was pushed on me, so I was always doing reading on my own independently as early as maybe grade 11 is when I started. And so I was never reading the school reading list. Even if later on, I loved books that were from that reading list. If I had read them when they were on the reading list, I would have been spiteful and probably resisted liking them. So I read Diary of Anne Frank last uh, year. And then obviously I, I'd always, I'm always interested in the Holocaust. Like I've definitely, um, it's always just been an interest of mine. My great grandparents were Holocaust survivors. Um, but like, Fantasies. oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. They just died last. They died uh, in with uh, two years ago. Uh, both in long term care over the pandemic. But they they oh, made wow. yeah. 
dated a long time. Yeah, they were in their 90s. So they were quite, they were like, yeah. Um, but like, uh, so I I only read uh, Diary of Anne Frank uh, last year, but I read a lot about it as well. And it seemed like she was pretty particular. I mean, first of all, she at some point did have intentions. Like, I don't think, I don't know from day one, but I know that eventually she did have intentions of like either using that material or publishing it. And so I, as far as I know, from what I read, she did go back and, and re- she did some revision. It wasn't, you know, to speak of another form diary. I mean, this, th- there are unpo- unedited diaries that are published, including on Simeotext, but this was like, she was going back and she yeah. was revising and, and there, I don't know how much, um, there's probably a lot of research on that, uh, mm. or, or whatever yeah. exists, but, but like, yeah, that's why to me, yeah, totally. It could totally make the argument. You could also say everything is autofiction because, I mean, um, Flaubert uh, said that he was Madame Bovary, like, you know, and what he meant by that, of course, was, you know, that that all, all everything in that book was um, kind of him and his experiences and impressions and whatnot. Right. So, I mean, you you can also make that argument, which is why it gets kind of tricky and slippery with like the definition. Yeah, I mean, I think, OK, I, I, I've been thinking about that, too. And I and I actually think that's why, like, some of the only fiction I feel like I can read and enjoy is fiction written before the age of autofiction. Because like, I, I think you're right to some extent that like, it was the acceptable and, and uh, well-tread way to put your thoughts and feelings in front of an audience, you know? Um, and that like the the idea of being like completely taking a step completely back from like story and characters and and uh, plot in in the traditional sense, I think I think it would have been too fringe for someone like Dostoevsky or F. Scott Fitzgerald or whomever you know you want to talk about in those times. But certainly when you read certain passages, you're like, this is not a character saying that. This is somehow intuitively, I can feel that it is the writer just, you know, expressing themselves almost impatiently, like almost like you can feel them break through the third wall in those moments. And, and it seems like they they wish they could break out of the constraints of the book. But yeah. Dostoevsky, for sure, especially with notes from Underground or whatever, like that's like, I mean, a lot of people trace kind of an autofiction lineage from like Hampson's Hunger and Dostoevsky's notes from Underground being two like uh, late 1800s uh, books that really set the course for modernist stuff, but also just like autofiction. Yeah, because yeah, notes from Underground is like, you know, I don't think it's like, I don't think it's even marketed today as like auto fiction, but I think it checks a lot of the boxes we're talking about. And I totally have yeah. this experiences you're describing when reading it some years ago. Yeah. Do you know, like, do you, so, so you've looked this up and that's sort is, is that, are those sort of the pillars of like the most early examples? I think like with auto fiction as a term specifically, it's like a very French thing. And I've been reading a lot of French writers, Guillaume Dustin being one in the 90s. But I've been trying to track down an English translation of, uh, uh, I think it's uh, Fee in French, uh, Serge Dabrowski. Mm-hmm. And like in 77, I know this because I've like, I've been looking for this book for like months in English. It's, it's, we can find it in French. And he used that term during like the book promotion uh, mm-hmm. to, to describe it. And that's like, 
as far as I've seen. And that's like the first use of that term. And from there, there's a whole school of French writers, many of whom are on semiotext, um, especially starting once you get into the 80s and then 90s of and reading this stuff is wild because it really makes like just to speak about genres altlet. It makes it seem like altlet is just completely rehashed, like reading these books, especially from the 90s, these French novels. <laughs> they I mean, they have early Internet then, too. And altlet mm -hmm. often people say is like a big part of it is the Internet. But it's like, man, we didn't really introduce very much new. Like, I, it, you know, um, it was done, you know, uh, 20 years prior, pretty much to a T. Like some, reading some of Guillaume's stuff, Guillaume Dustin especially, it's uh, like just, you know, it doesn't sound that long ago, the 90s. But if, if you're reading something that was written in 94, because of how quickly language evolves, if you're reading something from 94 that reads like literally could have been published like today, that's yeah. actually pretty impressive. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Totally. I was thinking when you were talking about this, like, okay, so so this this French writer sort of used the term, potentially used the term first. But like when I think about what autofiction is, I think of it as something that has to do with outsider art a lot of the time as well. And so around the same time that you're talking about, like 80s, 90s, I I would say a big growth period for a type of autofiction now looking back and recasting it as such would be like zine culture. Oh, sure. Yeah. And yeah, I, I yeah. Right. Like, because it, so it's, and, and, and actually like to think of that in terms of what we were talking about earlier as like some of the earliest, outsider art creator culture as well where it's just like you just take this paper and these you know photocopiers and you you create your own world that you share with people true and I guess I pre prior to you saying that had always kind of just framed it as kind of like a, a journalistic kind of offshoot and kind of reclaiming but actually journalism is part of this because I mean even you could say like um gonzo journalism of like the 60s whatnot oh, is I, also like Hunter S. Thompson yeah. and stuff like that right like the self being it's then it's taken away that kind of like the journalistic rules um and and supposed objectivity and th that that's probably part of this too I think and then zine culture of course is like that's then even more accessible because I don't actually know a lot about zines even though I was in the punk scene I think I was in the punk scene you know the internet by then had kind of taken over so at that point it was very my space like the punk scene had kind of not that there weren't I'm sure there were like you know uh, scene girls putting out zines and stuff I just didn't know anyone at the time who was doing it um mm -hmm. maybe you had more of an experience with that not firsthand not firsthand but when I got to uh college it which was I was in college in 98 seven or 98 was my first year undergrad and I had a friend named Chloe who was from Boston and who seemed to like have grown up in this kind of um like uh intellectual like Boston Brahmin but also like hippie punk uh influences in in her life and she was cool in a zine way and knew a lot about zines and you know, also was just like kind of like a a ferocious um, self creator and and maker of things, and you know wanted to be like we were in a band together, 
that never played outside of people's bedrooms. Like we were a oh, bed yeah. band and that was, that was all her. That was her idea. Like she just saw everything in this sort of like twisted way. Um, and so, yeah, but Lisa Carver, I, I would, I, I know that Lisa Carver started in zines and I think Lisa Carver is probably one of the like great, like taking off, uh, probably like in taking over from Eve Babbitts in a lot of ways as oh. well in her tone which thank you by the way because I hadn't read Eve Babbitts until I I talked to you and I found I I used to think that like I feel like as somebody who's from LA I have to have like a a, a totemic writer as my like you know touchstone LA touchstone and I used to think that it was Brett Easton Ellis but like it's not like I it's I love Brett Easton Ellis but his voice is uh I don't identify with it <laughs> and then I I read you Babbitt's and I was like yes like it's this kind of coy use of being smart and being dumb yeah well, I loved it yeah I mean she's like kind of like the yeah, I mean, she's obviously, I mean, she was a groupie quite literally by the, you know, and what would be considered a groupie at that time. And obviously you were supposed to be stupid if you were a groupie back then or the stereo stereotype went. Of course, that's not true, but um, but she definitely was like really flying in the face of that with like, she still had this image that she put on and did these things. But when you read her, I mean, just a raw, like such a raw natural talent. I mean, she read yeah. a lot, it's not like she didn't, you know, read a lot or but. I don't know. There are just naturals. And I think she was a natural. What did you um, check out by her? What portion of what? Or did you pick up a book or? Yeah, I read uh, Eve Babbitt's Hollywood. Oh, yeah, that's and you know, that one was like, that's not even my favorite. But I think that's a great I love the introduction to that. That kind of thank yous to like where she's thanking just like, uh, I don't know, it wasn't sour cream. What was it? Maybe it was tacos. Oh, but anyway, yes. two, two or three or four page long, like just yeah. thank you. And thanks to the uh, Diddy and Dunn's uh, for being you so I don't have to or whatever yeah. like yeah. yeah that was a good one to start with and she only in my opinion kind of like that one was like it was good but it's kind of thick and it's a bit dense and it's a little bit kind of um, diaristic and I think that like she has also some slimmer I haven't even read what's considered to be her best slow days fast company so I'm excited I haven't either but I but I listened to this interview with um uh Lily Analik yeah and uh, on on Brad Brad Lissy's podcast, shout out to that episode. Um, and uh, and I was like, holy shit! Now now if because Lily Analik, by the way, I think is a fucking genius. That Bennington podcast, yeah. Oh my god, blew my mind. I so, love that. What? I, I love that one. Yeah, I was yeah. like wrapped. Yeah, exactly. So, and, and I, I just trust her taste so implicitly. So if she says it's the best, then I like yeah. it immediately. But, um, but yeah, but talking about like the sixties and seventies and the Hunter S Thompson and the journalistic, um, the, the playing with the form of journalism, like I definitely feel like that's, that's the most, that comes the most naturally to me. This project that you're working on, by the way, this uh, um, autobiographical portrait, what do you call it? Yeah, it's, it's auto portrait. Um, oh. And it's literally the same title as a French writer who did the same thing. Essentially, well, so 
Edouard Levé wrote a book called Auto Portrait. Uh, it came out in 2005, just before his suicide and before he wrote a book called Suicide. Um, and it was he it was, he did a series of three books. Um, and Auto Portrait was it's described as and it's accurate description. Um, like literally from the back cover, it says something like a, a series of um seemingly random declarative sentences mm. about, about the author and so what i i read it and uh a writer allison zeta williams has is the one who had shown it to me uh she's a friend of mine she showed this book to me because we were both uh she's possibly more passionate about autofiction than me um oh. she showed me this book and it just i was immediately just like so enamored of the idea of it and i i think i had said something to her like a sentence um i think i'd said like i'm more afraid of disease than death and she's like that sounds like something uh from auto portrait and then i just started to you know i had already been thinking about the project so i started to write it and so i i i realized though as i was doing it that well first of all i thought everybody should do this even yeah. just for themselves or for their families and it's a form that's that's I found it easy. I know that other people, like I think I'd recommended, I said this at Misery Tourism and somebody else tried it and they were like, okay, I did this for about 16 minutes. And I, you know, for me though, I'm taking an approach where I'm not sitting down and forcing myself to, no. I'm just doing it as things occur to me and I'm building it up and I don't really have an end in sight. And I just thought, well, what value if to nobody else, surely if, if something ever happened to me or if I just naturally die, this document for, for family, you know, for friends, for that kind of thing, how valuable and even just for yourself. Yeah. So anyways, I started the pro I started the project then and was not concerned as much about being derivative because I just saw that inherent value and I thought everyone should do this. And even before this project, I'd had this idea of writing and trying to get a Canada Council uh, grant to probably visit seniors homes and interview a senior and do a series of these and write novels based on what they've told me about their life. So first person essentially ghostwrite, but interview them for hours and have them recall everything and do that. And this to me though, is like, uh, so I've always had an interest in that and not just in my, my own life, but everybody, I just find it infinitely interesting. So as I was doing this project though, my own style started to show through and I'm less concerned about being derivative. And I think that would be the case for anybody doing it. But mm -hmm. I did find out that a couple of years ago, another author published a book called auto portrait in the same style of just declarative sentences about himself. I think it's Jesse bell. I haven't read it yet. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, yeah, I want to see this become a thing where there's just like dozens of auto portraits and it becomes a, a form like, like a haiku or it, it just becomes a style of prose. Yeah. Well, well, I, okay. I think that's awesome. I definitely don't want to read a bunch of novels about old people's lives, but I would read like a, a fun scrapbook of of declarative sentences from their but lives. Just, but I think everybody's <laughs> life is interesting. It wouldn't be them as old. It would be their child. You know, people. No, I, I spent know, a lot of time. I, I I spent a lot of time as a journalist in, for a community paper, and oftentimes there was like, uh, you know, there were community staples. So a lot of old people, right? And I was attending yeah, a lot yeah. of like funerals and and for obituaries and all this stuff. But like some people, I mean. I don't know. I think everybody's life is interesting, I guess. Uh, for the most I part. do too. I do too. But I get I, what you're saying. I like this. It's more direct. Do, so this sounds great. But but I was just gonna say, okay, like having heard you read some of this on Misery Loves Company, which everybody can go and and 
uh, we'll link to the episodes where you sure. you do it. But um, I what I think you're doing that makes it worthwhile is like I think that every sentence is kind of you're risking something in a lot of them. Like I, I really felt that when I heard you read a couple of them, like there was, I the one that sticks in my mind is like your stepdad saying that like the hair, the like few hairs oh. that grown on your chest look like a little pussy. And I was like, <laughs> it was so good, Josh. It was so good because it's like, it's, it probably was like, um, it stuck with you for so long and I bet there were like years when you would think of it and feel like enraged but then to hear you read it in this kind of like unemotional detached way because when you read multiple declarative sentences that's how they hit right yeah um and but but for the content to be that like poisonous for a young boy's mind it was just it, it it just was really haunting and effective to to hear that so anyway I definitely want to risk gonna, it. what I definitely want there to be risk here you know what I mean like yeah, yeah. Of, yeah like it's I like I don't know I, I don't think uh I think maybe this guy Danny Laferriere a French auto fiction writer I like from <laughs> Quebec one of the only Canadian writers I admire I think I think he referred to something as full frontal literature, but I mean I just yeah there's uh, there is risk and I think that's good, but yeah, thanks for uh, the kind words about it. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, yeah, but but I was gonna okay. I wanted to talk a little bit more about um some of the like heavy hitters and then also where we think it's going. And I wanted to talk about um okay, so when I think about men who are lionized for this form um who are known as like autobiographical writers it is hard for me to use the term memoirist to describe them and yet when i think about women who are who have spent years of their careers writing about themselves and really like fucking with the form of traditional memoir that like um, I heard it described today as like this you know arc like person uh, overcome you know person has a oh, fuck it I don't know what the arc is but it's you know it's like a happy ending at the end a conflict in the middle and then whatever comes before the conflict um, yeah so they get called memoirists and it seems like a fucking ghetto to me for a long time and that's come up in what i've been reading just about i didn't realize this about how kind of like memoir uh people again memoirists had to kind of like fight for it to be like legitimized like i maybe it was assumed to be kind of like oprah book club type yeah. genre or whatever um unfairly so and i've read some great memoirs recently by by women too and that that to me just i mean i'm just like reading autofiction you know what i mean but um yeah. and i think maybe that term has liberated that maybe that's what that is i mean maybe that's i mean not to get to the look ahead question but maybe it absorbs memoir which could probably only be a good thing because of the issues that that has had in the past with being taken seriously yeah and it and in a way i feel like it's stupid of me to like fight so hard with the fact that like women writing memoir and that being a genre and that being a genre that sells 
yet I feel like I have to distance myself from calling what I do memoir because I would rather tell people like when people ask me what kind of what kind of work I do or like what kind of writing I do I say like oh I write about myself and Same. then I'll say like <laughs> heard of autofiction and of course nobody's heard of fucking autofiction yeah outside of yeah, yeah. Of them haven't even heard of memoir and yeah. and yet I'm like I'm so worried that somebody is going to think that I wrote eat pray love which by the way I think she's a good writer <laughs> so, I'd read it I'll ask uh... yeah. <laughs> But yeah, but I think it's just like this, to me, I've like, I've, I've internalized the idea that to say that it's memoir is to describe something hallmark sad and hallmark sappy and cute, you know, like, and like, it just seems like it's always going to be about like somebody's, you know, mom at the beach no, yeah. I don't know. And again, I hadn't really thought about it because I actually because I'm so interested in, in reading about pretty much anybody's life. Uh, I don't I didn't think twice about just going and, and uh, in used bookstores if they have a memoir section or if I see a memoir that looks interesting. Yeah. Like I read My Salinger Year by Joanna Rakoff recently. Uh -huh. it's just, you know, it was made into a movie, actually, which was surprising. But it's about a yeah, yeah about a girl who works for a uh publicist and it turns out to be jd salinger's publicist and she she kind of has and she's the one who gets all the fan mail for him that of course goes unanswered but anyways it was like um as i was reading it i wasn't thinking oh this is memoir or i wasn't thinking oh the, i you know it, the story it, it, the narrative moved well i like you know what i mean yeah, like, yeah, I yeah. Really, yeah, but I but i but i'm not yeah i get what you, okay the, it's a bit of a dirty word and for some people uh especially maybe for like uh people i don't know i i I guess maybe that it's a dirty word for like what, like the traditionally male dominated kind of like um, publishing industry with that, because right now it seems like women are uh, do have more control in publishing now. And there is a bit of a correction underway, but obviously that wasn't the case in the nineties when kind of, I think the memoir was kind of gaining this reputation that we're talking about. Yeah. But and I, I, what it stems from. Yeah. I, I guess you're right. I guess also like there's this um uh shit. Oh yeah, the addiction memoir, I think oh. that, that was also like an incredibly important uh part of the story of of memoir. I am gonna say like that that form a hundred percent follows the most um it's the most most formulaic usually an addiction memoir like you know what you're yeah. getting to you know what's coming at the end of it and that that doesn't matter from like you know a bulimia memoir to like uh anthony kiedis's memoir about uh heroin right it's like everyone is sort of like flattened in an addiction memoir um, and the details become hard to 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 follow after a while or like to well, the, the specificities get hard to like bring up in your mind after a while. What was the big one? And speaking about Oprah Book Club, this was was it that the was, James Bray Million Little Pieces by yeah yeah. yeah which I, I never which, so sad that autofiction wasn't something that he could call it at the time would right? have saved him a lot of grief. It I think. would have. <laughs> 
it would have and like you know but the, but this idea of the truth and and of like somebody betraying the truth I, I mean I think I think that's one of the most interesting things about about writing it and reading it is like knowing if you're deep in into it like I don't know it's it's almost like a it's almost like a meditation on truth every time and that's the question too is is it's like well I think it was I think that it was the idea of the traditional idea of memoir as being kind of like objective was outdated from the get-go because like people think that journalism was like the journalists think they're objective today and you're actually taught you're not taught that you're actually taught to be fair and balanced and there's protocols for that and even within those there come certain issues like for instance if you're writing about climate change fair and balanced doesn't mean to go to one climate change scientist and then one denier because the scientific community is so largely spread in favor you know what i mean so that actually would be a well-intentioned mistake but anyways <laughs> journalism long ago determined that actually humans aren't objective so it was kind of a silly uh parameter to or limitation to apply to memoir in the first place it had already mm -hmm. been done away with in journalism decades before at least by mid-century um so yeah and then there's the question of like you know objective truth and like subjective truth right and i mean like yeah which is also at the i guess the heart of autofiction because i mean it's just like um well even fiction can be like truth right like mm -hmm. so but. yeah um, yeah, I, I mean, when you think about like our scene and how that's developed, do you feel like you can trace that back to Talon mostly? Yeah. And the thing is, is that I do. And I actually, I think he's an important writer and I have all of his books, except I think there's like one kind of uh, hard to find one that Zach Smith has, but like, I, I've been a big fan, uh, for years mm -hmm. and I also think that he's had an interesting kind of development like it's there's real variety in his uh output like it, going from uh the early poetry and shoplifting up to like um leave society um mm -hmm. I do find it interesting though that there's like again there was a lot going on in France that was I wouldn't say similar to like Talon's early poetry or something but I was saying how you know a lot of the outlet stuff going on in France in the 80s and 90s but it just wasn't in translation. And even the book, I'm tell I told you that kind of by the guy who coined the term autofiction, you can't even fucking find it. Like if I can't find the book after a few months based on how I'm <laughs> shop for them and I literally yeah. have like book, book vendors who I'm in touch with about various things. Geez, I mean, that's remarkable. So I, I just wonder, it's interesting, was maybe Altlet just kind of uh, developed uh, on its own and then there was a whole other um culture of this that already existed but wasn't in translation mm -hmm. um and because that can happen i mean there's like i can think of like uh gary newman and the human league were going about kind of synth pop at the same time very early in synth pop and they didn't know about each other yeah. and they were in the same they were in the same country but they weren't in the same city and they had no idea and they were doing i mean they have their own styles but you know so maybe this is just a case of that of it organically cropping up more than once in the same place kind of thing mm -hmm. um i just find it interesting because i can't really find that connection even though i find the stuff so similar but for, within yeah. our scene yeah i mean talon noah cicero 
uh, who is kind of more low key now and and Sam Pink as well seem mm-hmm. to be like the big names that people I wasn't actually involved at the time like I wasn't on Tumblr and I wasn't like I was kind of late to the party actually I was still of the view when they were first doing their stuff I was kind of one of those people and I was young so forgive me but I was kind of like oh nothing good's been written after 1970 <laughs> you know what I mean just kind of like reading the classics and and, yeah. and all that stuff William Burroughs and Beats and, and all that stuff and wasn't aware that there was anything going on online because I just wasn't that kind of very online at the time. Yeah. But yeah, I would say Tao Lin is kind of like the the genesis, I guess, um, among so those other names and, and just Tumblr in general, probably. Like, oh, I think yeah. there's a lot of stuff that's like all, that names that people don't know or people who ran Tumblrs for a while who probably aren't even active now. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. True. Right. Yeah. I mean, yes. So what do you think about like, what do you think about where, okay, I I guess I have two questions. Like, do you think that what, what is going on right now in our scene, that there, that the idea of a breakout is possible and and if so what does that even mean like readership wise or whatever like I don't even know if I know what that means so that's one question and then the other question is like no never mind just start with that question I think like arguably like Tao Lin kind of was the breakout uh, mm-hmm. in terms of like multiple books on vintage you know what I mean like we saw Fuckboy got on a big publisher, but that's just one book. And and there's been, you know, Blake Blake Butler's Molly is doing seems to be doing well, but again, that's just that's one book. Talon's had like multiple big press, you know, and he's had like big press coverage over a long sustained period. So if there was a breakout, um, I would say that w- would have happened, and that would be him. But of among like let's say active like kind of online writers now, and what would it what is it possible, and what would it look like? I honestly think. And maybe, I mean, this would be an interesting kind of uh, turn. I think it would probably be something like it's been in the past for people like uh, Bukowski and probably Hubert Selby Jr., where they get popular in France or Germany or Europe yeah. first, you know? And then maybe it cycles back to America. But I think mm-hmm. it has to be filtered through Europe if it were to happen with someone like kind of avant-garde. I, I, and I haven't seen that really happen and I don't really think that happened for Talon maybe it did I know his work I mean I gotta say I'm on the other side of the pond like I'm sitting here in in Berlin and I have looked I have looked for presses that seem to be publishing things like that here now and I've looked for other writers that seem to be writing in that genre here and and I'm saying all over Europe including the UK and aside from Rachel Cusk, oh, Rachel right. Cusk. Ra- Rachel Cusk is a good one to mention, by the way. She's probably the, I think she's more popular than Taolin. And I would say that what she's doing is autofiction. And I haven't read her, but she's on my list. And actually because oh, I saw, yeah. I, I'd seen the name before, but then I think you had tweeted or something recently and that put it back on my radar. So I'm definitely like, maybe afterwards you can like, we can uh, DM about it. You could recommend me something or something. Because I'm going to, I'm going to add, she's on my I, list. I think aesthetically, I think you'll be really into the um, cover art, by the way. Sure. <laughs> no, I know. I know because it matters. I mean, I know it matters to you. Oh, so. yeah. I mean, well, that's how I find, that's actually how I found um, 
so Simeotext, I found them because they have a very minimal um, spine. Yeah, they do. It's hard to really see the my light is blocking the tech, but it's a certain. Anyways, I actually already had a Simeotext that I bought for school. It was an academic text, so I didn't realize I already had Simeotext, and I started seeing these kind of white spines. And I think the first one was, um, oh, seasonal associate. And so I saw that minimal spine. I took it off the shelf and it was like a nonfiction novel is what they called it about working at an Amazon warehouse. Yes. I, I was about seasonal associate. Yeah. That's, and that's one of my favorites on them. And that was what kind of, and then oh, I think I have it. I think I just got seasonal associate in the store. Great. Oh, I'm so excited. Okay. I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it next. But yeah, so, and, and so speaking about covers, like, yeah, absolutely. Which is why there's no excuse to have like a bad. And now of course it's for me, it's like, I go through bookstores. I'm like obsessive. I go three, three times a week, maybe uh, hit up a couple of the ones that I have luck at. I have managers who will now, if Simeotex comes in, I get the email. They're like, Hey, something yeah. just came in. Like, do you want, so anyways, but I don't even look for like, if I'm in a rush, I don't even look at the names and titles. I just have the spines of certain publishers emblazoned in my mind. And I'm just like, <laughs> scanning mm -hmm. that. but yeah, but no, totally. And okay. I we are so much alike in that way, except replace books with clothing Oh and yeah, yeah. It, I in the, in a flea market situation, like or even a thrift store, like I can spot. I use my hand, like, and I like silk, and then I look linen, I and then like that. I'm feeling materials, and and otherwise just like, you know, flipping through as fast as I can. So, yeah, I I mean, I totally understand the um. You know, I think it's, I think there's something that we share, which is that we both, we have like a hunter's mentality. And, and, and I also like, I love books as objects. So, you know, I will actually, so if I see a book that I want, it's taken a while to come out, uh, it's taken a while for me to find it. I'll, I'll get it no matter what edition it is. But if I don't like the edition and I see a better one come up later on, yeah. used, I'll buy that one and then give away the, yeah. the other one. Um, cause, because there's something about like a book I love and also in an edition that I love, uh, you know, that itself as the object, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. I was saying, I, I used to thrift a little bit, not seriously like in terms of so I dated somebody who was like essentially a thrift store manager and um she didn't have a business mind for it she I always thought she should have set up like a um an Etsy because she would find like even at our chain we have a chain of thrift stores here called Value Village they've started to wise up and price things more accordingly oh, but I know Value Village baby so so now they've started to open up Value Village boutiques and they're getting a bit smarter with the pricing <laughs> but back then I mean, she would find like $2,000 items and she was yeah. like you, she would, she would feel, she would kind of know, she would look at something and not know the designer, but know based on the fabric, like, oh, this is something. And so mm -hmm. I was never that level, but I did get into it and ended up like just finding simple things. I would go before the Hot Wheels, that takes up more time now. I would go to, I would go to Value <laughs> Villages and just like, you know, even just to find stuff like uh, my Clark's boots, which are just like, yeah. you know, uh, they were like, they're like $200 boots and I could find them for 20 bucks at Value Village. So like I would yeah. go in, and, but I wasn't like serious. I was no connoisseur with it, but like I, I enjoyed that hunt too. So we are yeah. like, cause I mean, we're just, yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. Okay. But that's interesting though, getting back to this idea of like what a breakout in, in the scene means. And, but here's what I, what I was thinking while you were talking about it. I was just thinking like, it seems to me that uh, 
um, big five publishing, I don't know who it's reaching right now. I guess it's reaching more more readers than are in our scene. I mean, I guess that's obvious. I don't I, know why. Well, but, sometimes. Sometimes. But <laughs> I feel like I don't know why they haven't caught on to this as like a uh, a groundbreaking genre that will have a lot of bandwidth going forward. I, because I, I I can't, I don't know. Or maybe I'm I'm very mistaken and like more people... Aside from other like distinctive genres, like I can understand why somebody wants to read science fiction. I can understand why somebody wants to read a mystery. I can understand why somebody wants to read a crime novel. I, 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 the form of those and the escape of those, when, when they're done perfectly, it is chef's kiss, right? But then when I think about what is being marketed in in this, you know, en masse way, and especially being marketed to women, it's like, I don't know, Curtis Sittenfeld's romantic comedy, I think is the book that always pops up when I open my ebook. And I'm like, what, who cares? Like, wh why in the age of so much streaming content, like why would anybody read a boring throwaway staged uh to be cute and funny romantic comedy it's a it, yeah it's a well you know i mean there are i mean sheila hetty is no doubt like a huge international breakthrough and and with the books and her most popular books are the kind of auto fictive ones but um but like i see what you're saying like uh i think it's a i think that the big publishers uh they have such big marketing budgets but they they're not smart with how they market you know i always thought that like there are subway ads for books still usually yeah. by penguin but it's yeah. usually usually books like what you're talking about yeah and I, and I always just thought well the people who want that like are already you don't need to market to them anyways like I thought you know what if they just had an ad that was like I think a lot of people don't realize like I think that so I sent uh, a friend of mine uh um Kelsey, a uh, kind of my work wife at a previous uh, real estate company I worked for. She moved with my friend Tim to California now, actually. So I need to go down to visit them. Uh, but I gave her uh, Guillaume Morissette. He's a Canadian uh, auto fiction guy. Uh, and he was around during the start, too. So right out around Taolin and stuff. And they're, um, they're in their anthology. Um, and I gave her one of his books. And, it, you know, it had some iMessage it had some eye messages and it had some emojis. Yeah. It was very relatable for uh, her. And she was like, probably read like five or six books a year or whatnot. And she loved it. She, she's like, I didn't know there were books like this. Yeah. You know what I mean? That were, that's and, and I think that's what I think. I think that like, I'm not sure that like the most hardcore of us are, are ever going to be palatable for a large audience, but I, I do think that there's a lot of work out there that's just, as you were saying, like somebody taking an interest in their own life and taking the time to like describe and write about it in a way that is narratively structured, in a way that is uh, humorous and the humor is based on real situations. And I think that there's something that is just endlessly relatable about that. A hundred percent. I mean, think about it. I mean, the most popular like sitcom of all time, Seinfeld, is essentially autofiction. 
Oh my <laughs> yeah. God. Gosh. That's so true. That's yeah. So, so it's true. like, so, so obviously there's a market and you know, the reading format's going to always have its own ceiling that's lower than movies and watching and whatnot, but surely there's untapped potential even today with, you know, like. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I, yeah. And then do you think, do you think that, okay. So what, here's another thing. Sometimes I think that like part of the, um, at, like, especially in relation to Twitter, all right? I do think that like, one of the things that I'm drawn to is the idea of like auto fiction and being a practitioner or, or writer or artist that uses that form. Um, that there's like potential to be very performative about it and to use like multiple avenues to perform what is essentially like a, a continuing drama about you and your life and your friends. And, you know, like it's, it's kind of like, I think about Andy Warhol in that sense. And I do think that Andy Warhol is a really important auto fiction hero, you know? Um, but also I think about yeah, the fact that he, uh, yes, dude, I fucking, I, I'll tell you about this later, but <laughs> I, I have a book up that I wrote about Andy Warhol, a food biography of Andy Warhol. It's like ready to go. Oh, I just, sweet. Yeah. I, 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 yeah, I don't know who to send it to, but anyway, it was my graduate thesis actually. Um, okay. But anyway, but Andy Warhol did this thing where he, um, uh, he had time capsules, which were like paper boxes that he filled every week with trash from his life during that week, then sealed it, then did another one. And he did this for like two or three years. And there's like a whole warehouse in the Warhol Museum in Pittsburgh that just has these boxes. And the contents of these boxes were like, Carolyn Kennedy's birthday cake and like, you know, silverware from the Concord and, uh, you know, just like wrappers from McDonald's or, like a receipt or whatever, you know? And that to me, that idea that like, if you think of yourself as somebody who is creating for an audience, then you can, you can sort of use a lot of methods to keep doing that, you know? Like your life can be, you know what I'm saying? I don't, I, I won't keep going. And it does speak to why it, I think it autofiction could be more popular is that it, it's it's all mythologizing and people are attracted to that. I mean, they're attracted, you know, that's essentially the mythology around celebrities. But, you know, it's it's mythologizing and people are attracted to mythologies like uh, and it's probably the type of fiction or whatnot that has the most potential for that but it's already happened but you know people love hunter s thompson because he created a mythology about himself right or that's why he's so popular anyways true and, and hunter s thompson is somebody who like um wanted to be mayor yeah and i sheriff it was the sheriff it was the deputy okay, it was the sheriff. Sheriff. but i totally understand that because it's like it's like this to per, to continue to perform the role of Hunter S. Thompson in as many arenas as you can. That's what I'm. That's what I'm. He almost about. won too under the freak power banner. Yes, 
Yeah. <laughs> one thing I wanted to, I, I, yeah, go on. So finish your okay, thing and then so, I have one thing. So anyway, that's what I was going to say is that like what I hope happens in the future is that, yeah, that people start to use more platforms to to essentially make like an art project that is auto fictional and and goes on for years right so that at the end of a life like you Josh Sherman could have like multiple auto portraits you could have multiple like one-off books you could have this podcast you could have your own podcast you could have your Hot Wheels collection you know it's like I really think that that is I think that's smart and I think it's interesting and I think it it subverts how platforms are being used right now which is like to kind of reach a bunch of people in this very bland like you know like and subscribe sort of way and and to instead make it this like like weird freaky personal eccentric project that you add to and add to and add to forever until you die yeah. and that's not reliant on any one platform in particular kind of what you were talking about like it's not yeah. like just about like you know it's yeah it, that, it, and to me that's part of the subversive i guess element and especially because for me I'm, I'm trying to do this for it involves digital things but i'm trying to do this for a physical product that exists outside of all of that right being a book yeah. but I, yeah one thing and I wanted to just read like literally a paragraph. Yeah. And because if we're going to talk about autofiction, one thing that I, I felt the need to almost like preempt and let me just, um, so I found what I was looking for, but uh, preempt uh, would be kind of criticisms and not, you didn't make any, but people have, and this word is so thrown around narcissism. And okay. I think it's so lazy um, not to say that it doesn't exist at all in the realm that we're talking about, but that I, the kind of value of autofiction or what it can be is so far beyond narcissism and doesn't have to be a byproduct even of narcissism. Mm -hmm. And um, Guillaume wrote, like, there's two things about, so one was a quote, and I don't know if it was by Sheila Hetty, but it was certainly in an article relating to autofiction and her work. And it was kind of like, it was something like the value of autofiction is that, you know, in writing it, the writer might learn something about themselves, but then also, so the reader could too, you know what I mean? Like in, through reading these kind of highly personal narratives, you, you, you might learn also something about yourself. And, and then I was reading um, Nicholas pages by Guillaume uh, Dustin that, uh, which I just finished. Um, and he, ha he says here, this is the value of all the whole apparently narcissistic tendency in contemporary art to take oneself as one subject is to also explode the stupid dichotomy between the artist and the non-artist to show that there are only people who work on themselves. Um, and then he continues, um, well, actually the rest is kind of getting into, um, well, yeah. So he he's also talking about um, uh, gay writers, faggots, uh, as he says, but mm -hmm. he continues a bit later, the difficulty that faggots have in existing <laughs> is a blessing, is grist for the mill for this whole great movement in literature, a moment that is still ongoing, that consists of abandoning what might be called great fiction, uh, uh, similar to great painting or great music, in favor of a kind of domestic narrative, house literature like house music, autofiction as self-management or self-publishing. I like it. Anyway, so I just thought he was so on the I nose with all that. of that. 
I love that. I, because yes, I think that that's exactly it. I think like a sweeping, uh, gone with the wind type story. Like I am, I, I am amazed that people do it, but I don't know why they do it. Yeah. You know, like you said, it, and it's like the thing that you said about science fiction, like if done well, like, you know, chef's kiss. Like, I mean, I, I, it's not like I've never enjoyed, I mean, I love, uh, Beautiful and Dam- the Beautiful and Damned by uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald. You know what I mean? Like I still, I still, but in general, I agree with you. And also, especially today, it's like maybe I wouldn't say it's. Been, I, I don't know that we've moved past it, but I just think that basically this is exactly on the level of that, and it, it really that art is no better than this kind of thing, no matter what anybody thinks about that. You know what I mean? But I, I, but I enjoy both. It's just, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I know where my, where my favoritism lies. Yeah. And then also just like talking about narcissism for a while, like I, I think it's brave to believe that you are worth somebody else's time. I don't yeah. think it's narcissistic. I no. think that's, you know, that's deciding that like you belong on record that you can be a micro history and and that your life matters yeah it, it's not like it's not like it's not like no narcissist has done that but it doesn't implicitly mean that you are narcissistic for doing it you know what i mean yeah. like yeah and people, yeah, yeah, people do matter. I mean, I think that, and like I was saying earlier, just even with like everybody doing an auto portrait or something, it's just if only for yourself, but if it's for other people, your family will find value in it. You know, I wish that my great grandparents, you know, I could never talk about the Holocaust with them. I was told yeah. when I was little going over to their place, you know, I was at the age where um, I'm talking like when you're five and you could just say anything, right? And they yeah, had, yeah, of yeah. course, they never had the tattoos removed and whatnot. So, you know, I was just, they, I was war, my family was trying to kind of preempt whatever I might ask. So, like, don't yeah. say anything, don't ask about the tattoos and all this stuff. That's fine because I wasn't of an age to, I, I think it would have been good if, if, if they felt open to have that talk with a five year old. I don't think there's a problem with that. I think there's a way to do it. But I was never able to. And, yeah. and, and that I understand because, of course, that's their own trauma too. But I'm just saying I would have found infinite value. And if they had ever been able to break through and, and record any of what they might have thought. And if I had that now, even, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. 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 Or just other relatives or just literally. Yeah. Just literally anybody. So and again, I don't think any of what we're talking about there sounds at all narcissistic to me. You know what I mean? No, no I mean, of course, like you can, <laughs> it's like that to to dis- to describe um, Holocaust survivors telling their story, like <laughs> really the show of foundation as narcissistic. Now that's anti-Semitic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, those Jews and their yeah. narcissism over uh yeah. Yeah, but um uh I mean I I think that I've yeah, I feel like this is a this is a, very much what I wanted to talk about. And I guess um I mean, I guess I just wonder also, like, if they're, I mean, I'm certainly curious about, like, the books that, like, shaped you. I I think I've heard a lot about, like, like the French writers, but I'm, I guess I'm also curious about, like, um, some of the earlier stuff that you read, like, or, or, like, maybe actually what I, what I'm interested in is, like, 
why are you a reader? Like what, what made you be so into it? When did you start writing? So I got into literature because uh, in high school, my best friend uh, was into literature and I thought he was very cool. I thought he was like the, and, and he had kind of this uh, kind of a branded himself almost kind of like as a kind of like punk intellectual type, you know what I mean? Always had a paperback in his back pocket kind of thing. And I was young and impressionable and he was a year older than me, which at that age, you know, someone in a grade older yeah. is kind of more significant. And so I just read, you know, stuff like he was just reading kind of like, you know, No Surprise, The Stranger by Camus and things like that. And I enjoyed it. Um, I think actually uh, The Fall by Camus was one that resonated more with me later on. But so it started out as that way of just being someone like I was be someone being impressionable and whatnot. When the actual enjoyment kicked in, you know, I actually have always liked Solitary Pursuits. So I think that early on, even though the first books that I read, you know, I think Brave New World, I really loved. I felt at the time that I was I was very like um, sexually repressed and whatnot. And, uh, you know, with the in Brave New World with the kind of orgy porgy where he's just supposed to like partake in the orgy and he's kind of like a little bit more sentimental. I think that so. So I was already making those connections. I, I think it was the I think it was the um, it's the, the medium itself and the way that it's kind of one person's vision. And Derek and I have talked about the conversation that literature is, uh, you know, with books conversing with each other over time and over yeah. decades and over centuries, but also uh, the conversation, I guess, kind of that is um, the reader uh, with the writer kind of thing. Um, and as we just said, that one thing I wanted to add about the auto portrait uh, and a goal that I just um, was that I want I, uh, my auto portrait to be a one goal I have with it is to be a conversation stopper. I want to preempt anything someone could possibly ask me. And it's a challenge to myself. And I bet you there still be things that people can ask. But I just thought that that was um, just speaking about as an aside. But yeah, I think that that was what drew me in, though, was kind of that the idea of the conversation and also the immediacy. It's been said by others, like just that uh, interaction you have with a novel, at least to me, feels so much more intimate than any other medium. With film, they're just even... I like that's why I like auteur is the best. I like auteur is the best because that where it really feels closer to one person's, you know, yeah, vision, totally. but it's still not because there's still the best lighting experts brought in and there's still often the screenplay has been gone over by Sev and it's still yeah. just and that removes me from it a little bit. And it's not a, a it's not a snobbish literary thing. It's just the medium of uh, literature appeals to me for that for the directness and, and the um, immediacy of that connection, as I yeah. perceive it anyways. Yeah. And um but and then just speaking about like early stuff, uh, I think I've always had like a bent for because of that. So if I like that about literature, obviously I'm I was always drawn to like, you know, uh, personal kind of narratives. Uh, <laughs> and so probably I read Bukowski, and I obviously like Bukowski. Uh, how how old were you when you read Bukowski? I was actually not. I was probably nineteen or twenty. Okay. But what blew me away wasn't actually him, even though I really liked it. It was uh, John Fonte was the first uh, who was a huge influence on Bukowski. And it was it was really just Ask the Dust. And I I, at the, I think this was around the time the movie, the terrible movie starring like Penelope, maybe Selma Hayek and, and an Irish actor playing an Italian that made no sense. But because of that, the book had been put into mass printing. Okay. And so I just saw it and I knew that the name, because Bukowski mentions Fonte in his books and that was the first one. It's highly, all of his stuff's highly autobiographical. But 
his writing is of a kind of lyrical style that's not purple. You know, it's just like it's just technical. It's like raw. It, it has that Babbitt's kind of natural quality to it, but it's it's lyrical, but it's again not like florid. Like it's it's really it's raw. Yeah, and yeah, I yeah. never encountered anything like that. And so with that, I was like, wow, this is like you know true to life, but it's also stylistically like elevated, I guess. Yeah. And, and, and that was like hugely formative because I'm just so into style. And I don't know about yourself, what, when you started reading, what, was it earlier? Was it because I didn't have my family did not. There are no readers in my family. So that was never a thing growing up. It was always a struggle. Like I, I struggled. Yeah. With reading. I, I mean, so interestingly, my mom was a huge reader, but she only read romance novels. Oh, yeah. So and I felt embarrassed and a little bit ashamed that she read them and so I think like actually probably it pushed me into a more literary direction than I would have been drawn into <laughs> otherwise because I was like like look at you reading your like outlander and look at me reading you know and I guess like back then early on it was a lot, like, I think the first thing I read were, were the beats. The first time I was like, reading is cool, and I'm cool. And then I started reading the beats. And LA is such a amazing place for, for like, picking up from the wind and the people around you, what you should and shouldn't be reading. Like, I mean, one of my earliest memories is going to a bookstore in Venice on a day where my family wanted to do a... Uh, a, like rollerblading on the Venice boardwalk. Oh, I would love. I would do that today. <laughs> yeah, that was like a that was a fun family outing for me when I was younger. And I delayed us because I wanted to go to this bookstore, and I ended up getting into the bookstore and standing right next to um Holly Hunter, who was in there too. And then we started talking about books and she recommended a book and, and like basically picked one out for me. And I was probably like 11 years old, you know? So you remember what she picked out? Yeah. It was the great Gatsby. Oh yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I love that book. I think yeah. you can't go wrong with that one so, still, especially. Um, if, yeah. yeah. But so anyway, like I, uh, yeah. So, so, and so then I was sort of like, uh, I, and then I was sure, like, you know, I had like that, you know, that feather in my cap, like, like, see mom and dad, like, this is, this is what cool looks like. Like, I'm your cool <laughs> kid. And, and now I'm going to let you guys go and rollerblade and I'm going to sit underneath like an umbrella and read The Great Gatsby the whole time that the rest of the family did that, because I was so dedicated to this image of myself as cool. But then... I, you know, The Great Gatsby, I don't know. It didn't really speak to me that much. And then what ended up speaking to me was like um, all of the the memoirs. Yeah, like I read this book called Autobiography of a Face about a woman who had like face cancer, like jaw cancer, and then had to have like multiple reconstructive surgeries. Her name was Lucy Greeley, I still remember. And that book was astonishing to me. And then I read, uh, you know, um, like, a, there was a, not the Prozac Diary, but this other book about Prozac, a lesser known one by an author named Lauren Slater. And that one really, 
spoke to me. And then I re read a lot of drug memoirs. I was really, really into reading about drug use, drug addiction, alcohol use, alcohol addiction. And I don't think I've, I don't think I've gotten over that. I, I don't That's know. It's interesting that we were both kind of like, I mean, you were trying to do the opposite of like, you know, uh, the family, we were pushed in a direction. Uh, and I kind of took a direction and ran with it. But it was both kind of in how we wanted to be perceived. Right? Because yeah, yeah. I thought, yeah, I thought reading was and you were just being like, Oh, I'm cooler than my family. And I was like, Oh, I want to be cool, like my best friend kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's and also, like, it led me to get Bleak House in college, because I was like, Oh, that's like a really thick book. And that's impressive that I'm walking around with a really thick book. And then I was like, Oh, this is a great book. <laughs> I haven't. I haven't read that one. Also, just to your point, I, I said that can't go wrong with Gatsby, but you know, you can in terms of the age. I don't know why they assign it to people that are like that much younger. You know what I mean? Like, I think like someone like it, it shouldn't be like you know they assign it like I don't know what grade, but they assign it in like grade eight, grade nine. I just you're not gonna yeah. I I'm I I don't know when it became like. I, I think people should read above like you know it's not that that people yeah, can't. I don't think I don't think my reading comprehension was up to the task like like F. Scott Fitzgerald has really complex metaphors and I wasn't reading them as metaphors. I was reading a lot of things literally that were clearly like art artistic metaphors. And it just like whoosh went right over my head. It's like trying to watch fucking, I don't know, you know, Solaris or something. Yeah. When you're that. 12. And uh, I still wouldn't. I mean, I'm I'm just dumb when it comes to film. I'm actually pretty dumb when it comes to books too. But uh, especially uh, film. I I saw uh, I watch like three or four movies a year. And uh, uh, went it, with. Oh, that's all you watch. Yeah, yeah. And I went with uh, Sheila to. Uh, I'm telling you, the medium just really doesn't appeal to me, and I only go with other people. Um, I think the most movies I ever saw in a year was when I was dating someone who worked for the Toronto International Film, International Film Festival. So that year I, you know, I went to tons of movies, but um, the uh, the movie, I, I saw my first of three movies this year and uh, it's typically like, it's not great art. I saw the Adam Driver Ferrari movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but for a Hot Wheels guy, I can understand what. Right, it makes, yeah. But uh, yeah, so I'm not, yeah. Uh, my opinion on film is uh, you you irrelevant. Don't, you don't watch TV either? So I watch a lot of reality TV. I watch oh, a lot of 90 cool. Day. Like I watch a lot a lot of 90 Day Fiance. I've probably seen, like I'm pretty much up to date. I've watched like hundreds of hours of that. Like I 90 Day the other way. It. Yeah, like just all the um, those. I watch, um, yeah, HGTV stuff like House Hunters International. Like it, I watch basically almost exclusively reality TV. Huh. I don't watch really any reality TV. That and I, I like I can't and, and and I think it's because I don't know how to enjoy it. I like the I well they're all you know they're all mythologizing especially on 90 days because a lot of them are using it to try like to parlay that into their own brand. You know what I mean? Cause they know that the show can't go on forever. I mean, some of them I feel stay in relationships just to still be on the show, but you know, you look them all up on Instagram and it's like 200,000 fall. So it's just, I find it interesting uh -huh. that it's all these people kind of mythologizing themselves and like, you know, they're being played by the camera, by the, by the production crew, but they're 
also playing the production crew and i like the tension or at least the tension that i perceive there i will say i do watch um gilmore girls that, that's the other thing i got wasted last night and watched gilmore girls for oh, like nice. the i'm like four to, four times uh, i'm on my fourth way through the whole uh series wow yeah i've i've never watched gilmore girls either yeah, Rory, the character of Rory Gilmore was like uh, very formative for my uh, sexual awakening. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, that's how I feel about but... Leto. Oh, right. <laughs> oh, one thing you had mentioned. I mean, I don't know if you have any. Um, you'd said kind of like heavy hitters, but I think we mentioned like we've mentioned a lot. And I actually uh, I'm glad you mentioned uh, Rachel Cusk again, because like I'm just that's probably going to be like, I mean, I have a little bit of a to read pile but i'm definitely going to read that this year in terms of uh other stuff that you've read that you think people might not have heard about like is there anything that fits into what we've talked about at all other than her that you that comes to mind yeah i mean like i i really love the uh writer abigail thomas who is in her 80s now and um and has written like multiple uh, essay memoir type books and continues to do it and um, has just always had this style that's like very defiant of what is expected from uh, like I don't know I just I just think that she's like crass in all the best ways and um, yeah so I would really recommend anything by Abigail Thomas and, oh, I love grass work. Yeah, like, yeah. In the right ways, you're saying in the right ways, yeah. Yeah, and then the other one, I don't, I mean, I don't think, I, like, I don't think I'm, I, I don't know, I don't, I think actually I'm late to the party in a lot of ways. And so I've just been reading to catch up. So you, I'm sure you know more, I'm sure you know more than I do about, about like what's out there and what to read. But yeah, if I think of something, I'll definitely let you know. Sure. For me, I, I guess I wanted the only thing that kind of we haven't touched on that I want I wanted to just promote like uh uh Canadian um couple Canadian autofiction writers or or writers who have you know, because outside of Canada, we're not good at promoting ourselves in Canada. I mean, the, the last time, I mean, obviously we've had Drake and Justin Bieber, but people don't really perceive them as a made in Canada product. The last time there was like a Canadian, anything in the arts that I think was like known to be Canadian and was, was probably like the whole broken social scene, arcade fire. Um, that oh was yeah, true. When, when Montreal was kind of on the internet. So we're not, we're really not good at exporting our talent and often Canadian writers, if they are um, like, you know, kind of like, um, stylists or just not you know bestseller yeah. types they go to the they get published in the states like i mean brad phillips and steve anwell are on tyrant books they're they're great you know great canadian writers but i wanted to mention i mentioned him once but danny leferriere he is a haitian uh emigrated to canada in the 80s he settled in montreal after being essentially like fleeing haiti because he was a journalist and his friend was uh assassinated and they kind of told him he's next mm -hmm. and he He's written almost exclusively autofiction, but some of it's really quite obviously like it's his name, but it's a kind of some of it's more like, oh, this all feels true. Some of it's like, you know, one is called I'm a Japanese writer. Oh, and cool. It's, That's and great. it's a book. It's a book about 
how he just said that as a title and the publisher now wants a book. And so he's starting <laughs> to write the book. And then in it, though, the part that becomes like clearly kind of not true is like the Japanese consulate gets word of this and takes like a huge interest. And it kind of goes into the, you know, and his first novel was um, how to make love to a Negro without getting tired. And that one's more of like a traditional kind of auto fiction in that it all reads pretty um, believably. And it's about, again, a immigrant from Haiti coming in and hooking up with uh, white uh, art school girls uh, at Concordia and McGill oh as a black yes. Haitian. And, oh, uh, but he's, but oh, he's very, different. but he's very kind of like, I wouldn't say he's anti identity politics, but he's really not like, he's very subversive and he's very outside of that whole discourse, but has his own thoughts on it all. And so he's a writer. I've now read several of his novels and I finally tracked down his second and I have a few on the go, but he's like my favorite Canadian writer it took me, I only discovered him like in my late 20s, which is crazy. I mean, he yeah. checks all the boxes in Canada for like a writer they would want to promote, you know, a black. Is he still from, alive? Yeah, he's uh, he's in his. find him? He's in Montreal and I've actually had a, not a run in with him, but when I was in Cuba with my mom two years ago, I was on the beach and made friends with these two uh, older uh, Quebecois men. And one of them was kind of acquaintances with David Hommel, who is D uh, Danny's translator. Wow. So, so and, and, and so anyways, we talked a bit about, <laughs> but so it was kind of like, you know, small kind of world, but it took me so long to discover him. So I was thinking, well, if I'm from Canada and I didn't discover him until yeah. uh, my late twenties, nobody probably in the scene has heard of him and, and they'll like any of his books and they're, and they're different. One is like an extended haiku about returning to Haiti. And there's just, there's a lot there. It, it won't get old. So cool. Yeah. And so he's, and, and then the other one was uh sky Gilbert, who is, he, he launched a theater. So he was a theater guy. Um, uh, buddies and bad company which was kind of known in toronto but he had a falling out because he's an older gay man he had some views on the trans community that basically got him thrown out of his own uh theater um but he has written uh some poetry that's kind of like bukowski like and if you like that minimal narrative is mm -hmm. good but he wrote a memoir in um a few years ago and i picked it up based on the title alone i actually bought it the same day i bought how to make love to a negro without getting tired I bought his auto fiction uh, called Sad Old Faggot. And, mm -hmm. and in it, he basically starts the book by saying he's seen Sheila Hetty writing like this and figures, fuck, if she can do it, I can. And so he writes his own auto fiction. And I thought it, but it was really good. Yeah, just those are two things where I was like, in my head, when we were going to have this conversation. I'm like, I'm going to plug those two authors. Oh, that's, cool. that's nice. Yeah, I'm super excited um, about this episode coming out because I think people... I don't know. I think we've been meaning to do this for a while and I think we really did it, man. I feel like yeah. closer to you now. Likewise. And I, but yeah. I've always, like I said, I mean, I said earlier in private that I was glad that we were kind of, that we uh, came into each other's orbits kind of thing. Yeah. Even before this, but now especially. <laughs> yeah. All right. I'm going to, I want to, I'm going to take us off the, the record then. Sure. All right.